What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Yes. I figured out why Jason has a website. Why is that? It's not exactly the easiest bloke to talk to. Well, let's try that. Hello. Can I speak to uh, Jason Buffhead Furman, please? Uh, what are you doing, you? Well, you heard it here, folks. That's the kind of treatment you'll get if you actually dial Jason from Mindrick Dog Clip. So what you need to do if you want any leashes, tugs, harnesses, balls, reward toys, canine fitness and conditioning equipment, Herm Springer things, anything like that, head to EinswickDogQuip.com. That's E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K.com because you do not want to have to talk to this guy. <laughs> Glenn, what are you doing? I'm enjoying a delicious treat from Bright's Bites. The dog training treats? The same. I've heard that Bright's Bites are not just healthy and nutritious for dogs, but they're so delicious, they're actually a very motivational form of training. They are indeed. We've tested and tried them on site, and they work just great. Well, how did you get a hold of those? Did you purchase them off of a website? I went to dogsquadcanineservices.com.au. That's where people should go to get themselves some Bright's Bites, healthy, nutritious, but also highly motivational dog training treats. Get them in your dog, y'all. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart, and I'm joined in studio for the first time in a long time by my co-host, Glenn Cook. I'm sitting on some really big news at the moment. Oh, what is it? Epstein didn't kill himself. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that was coming. Um, way to date the program. Yeah. Yep. When people listen in a few years, I'll be like, what the fuck, what they the fuck is Epstein? Yep. Yeah. So, hello. What's been and going I- on? Well, lots of things. You've been jet-setting around, you've been in Texas, and yeah. where else? Oh, and then I went over to PSA Nationals in New Jersey. That's right, yeah. Yeah. You want to quickly give a recap on that? Oh, mate, I loved it. So, Texas was great. Had a good time there. With Josh, Josh did a great job. Yep, in his amazing double whiteboards. Yeah. Actually, if you can believe. That he did the, it for you. Yeah. No, well, no. <laughs> that's sure that he's using But I did not erase anything other than mistakes. I did not erase anything from the whiteboard over the first full day. So, I had my whole spiel- Draw nice. out on the boards, which made me very, very happy. Yep. So, well done, Josh, on providing me two giant whiteboards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then over to New Jersey, did a like a, a private uh, sort of seminar there and then to the PSA Nationals, which was fucking awesome. Yep. Very inspiring. I love going to that shit, seeing the top competitors. Mm. Again, like just really good feel there. Everybody was... Certainly from my point of view, everybody is a giant big family there. I'm sure that there's a lot of stuff I don't know about, but it, all the competitors get along really well. Yep. And just watching some of the dogs, like I had a hard time trying to decide 
what level I enjoy watching the most because like the level ones, you know, you still got dogs that are really flashy obedience and very technically specific, tight obedience. And then by the time you get to level threes, it's just such chaos that you're surprised that anybody can control their dog at all and the spectrum in between. So it's really, it's really enjoyable to watch that, you Mm. know, like I'm not super into, I say I'm not into it, but maybe it's because I, I don't know, but like really flashy, like IPO style healing, that kind of stuff. Like that's, like I don't enjoy that as much as I do when there's chaos and you can still control your dog. Yep. So that's what's awesome about like watching the nationals is you're watching the peak of people in in all of those realms. Yeah, it is. It's it's control under a shitstorm. Yeah. Mm. So it was great. I had an awesome time. I really enjoyed, you know, training with like I was with the Strong Island guys, uh, John Katz's club. Yep. Trained with them a couple of days before and then I decoyed for the open field. I got the sads up pretty hard the day before that I didn't have my dog and that mm. I wasn't competing. Like I really was pissed off FOMO. at myself. Yeah. Yeah. Really yeah. pissed off for not having done it. Mm. But you know, then I'd be pissed off now because my dog would still be stuck in America. So yep. it's still in the stars. I really, really want to go over and take him and compete. And you know, the South Africa had three competitors there. Wow. Yeah. Two in the twos and Mariel, I think her name is, she, she came second. Yep. She did a good fucking showing. And her husband, Charles, he, his dog bit in the call off, but also a really fucking good showing other than that. Um, they had a guy there in the ones who, um, his dog just came out to do bite work and yeah. came out to do bite work in the obedience, yep. which is a bit of a heartbreak, but you know, that happens. He wasn't the only person that happened to. Yeah. yeah and Whatever so, happens, happens on the day. Yeah. Mm. So it was really, it was very impressive showing by everybody. I had an amazing time. Like yep. really- it looked a, good. I was yeah. watching uh, a lot of the online content. The lives, and, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it's always impressive to watch. I love watching that dog inside the tent. They were doing the yeah. hydrobathing yeah. exercise. Yeah. Where they were doing the. Mate, what's amazing, that dog, Zero, his handler, Autumn, is 18 years old. I know. She's been showing in PSA since she was 14. That's amazing. She's in the level threes. Yeah. Um, and I don't, she doesn't have a title yet, but she's com- showing in the threes at nationals, you know, yep. so she's fucking working. She's up there. Just super impressive. Yeah. And, you know, one of the scenarios- Is it a family thing or is she just doing it by herself? I'm not sure, man. I don't know. Mm. You know, Janet wrote the- She was judging the three. So, some really cool, fun And she got uh, brought into the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations, Janet. Yeah. So, now her, Sean- and her dog, Zuko, her original dog, are all in the Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame. Yeah. So Isn't that amazing? Cool. But her scenarios like- were like really cool. It sort of had a theme of a dog show. Yep. So that was really, really cool. Yeah, I um, know. It was very funny. Yeah. But what I really, you know, I look at all these things really super critically, like, okay, I don't have my dog here. So what are these people doing that I'm not? Like, you know, you know, I really was watching closely. Uh, and there's a lot of skills that I saw people using, especially in the in the, the surprise scenario of the two and in the threes yep. that are just control work stuff that yep. I've now come home and started teaching my dog. Like a lot of sort of gun dog style directional things mm-hmm. so that, uh, you know, I can tell him it's this, not that and yep. that kind of thing. Like it's not good enough to have a dog that sees the decoy and goes, okay, I'm going to buy it. Like it, which decoy is it? And it's yep. not necessarily the one that is obvious. So just sort of teaching those kind of directional stuff. Mm-hmm. Which is awesome because I was getting a little bit stagnant in the obedience that I was teaching, you know what I mean? Because he does all that like as well as I'm I, I'm happy with his standard of obedience. Yep. So it's doing, just a new array of skills to Yeah. So this is and it's exciting for him because I haven't taught him anything new in ages. Mm. So we're back to actually learning new skills and teaching new commands and you know, like I just saw, you know, different ways of 
teaching a transport, like, or not teaching the transport, but doing the transport. So now I've gone back to absolute foundation of doing that. Cause I, I, I saw it and I was like, okay, that's better than that has a utility that I don't have in the, in the way my dog does a transport. So I yep. want, I want both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just little stuff like that. It was really good. That's awesome. Yes. Yeah, so I had an awesome time. Thank you to everybody that uh, had loads of people come up and sort of introduce themselves. And like I say, for me being there was just this big, happy family. Like yep. I really enjoyed being there and I, I'm sure it's because I'm the foreigner, but everybody's just amazingly polite and welcoming. Yep. So yeah, I had an amazing time. And you know, there was so many people that I met when I was at nationals in 2016 that haven't really seen or haven't seen, but, and maybe talk to a tiny bit online or whatever, but it's, you know, hugs and hello and how mm. you doing. And, and like it was yesterday. Yeah. So it, it was great. And I love it. And I'm reinvigorated and, and ready to get training. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. What were you doing while I was gone? Narelle and I did a seminar in Melbourne, which went really That's well. Cool. Yeah. It was fantastic. First time you two have presented together. First time husband and wife team together. Mm-hmm. So we didn't know how that would go. Mm-hmm. It could be one of those things that goes, absolutely exceptionally well yeah or it could be an absolute mitigated disaster <laughs> but fortunately it went exceptionally well so we're hosted by Kay from canine resolutions Kay frost. and uh, Kay frost and uh, shane menker they were as hosts they were the best hosts we've ever been with wow yeah i know i've told you that before but mm, it's like, a big call it is a big call their setup um facility the way they ran to time uh the organization skills the way they looked after narelle and i was second to none mm-hmm I said online that they treated us like rock stars. I wasn't exaggerating. Mm-hmm. We were picked up from the airport. Shane was waiting for us at the gate. As soon as we walked out, they grabbed our bags off us. They were walking us up. They were chaperoning us everywhere. Like you couldn't ask for better reception from people in the game. So Perfect. I really want to thank both of you, Shane and Kay, and also the Canine Resolutions team for the wonderful weekend of hosting. I felt great at the seminar. I did a, in my opinion, I think I did a great job. Narelle did an absolutely outstanding job i couldn't mm-hmm. be prouder of her her information was exceptionally well i mean she prepared for it for months out like yeah, she was yeah. absolutely grinding the gears making sure everything was perfect and, and that's course, cool now right so that works done so that works do done. more presentation she's got it all in the bag and it only gets better from here it un- yeah that's exactly right it only gets better from here because she's uh she knows what she needs to do she knows what she what addition she'd like to add to the next one so mm-hmm. As far as her information goes, like she's a world beater. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think it's cool because there's certainly a void in that space, right, of people that have the depth of knowledge she has and the application as well. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, she's trained for years in her field, you know, like she's a Bachelor of Agricultural Science and now mm. she's a Bachelor of uh, Natural Medicine as well. Yeah. Plus she's done like a shitload of degrees in between. So all her training is legit. Yeah. You know, she's not just a – uh, somebody who's done a couple of weekend courses and just yeah. credits herself as a as a world authority. She's <laughs> she's very she's very well. Everything's fact and science based, right? Like she everything that she presents is here's the study to prove exactly. what I'm talking about. She, rather than this is how I feel about it. This is these are these are facts. Yeah, she just cannot release something without knowing that it's backed by science. Mm-hmm. I mean that that's something that really upsets her. Like if she looks at material and just thinks, well, there's no evidence to support that. Yeah. That's and I guess it's the same for us when we talk when we see information online that's infactual. Yeah. It blows your mind that people can put that sort of material out. Yeah, yeah. Which mm. is happening all the time. All the time. Anyway, that's cool. Mm. Hey, so we put it out there. It's been it's actually been people haven't noticed a a lag in the podcast because we we had them up our sleeve and you'd been Which working away fantastic. at that hundred. Mm. So yeah, but 
people don't realize we haven't done this in about a month. Yeah. Yeah. So, been, which is cool. It's been forever. Yeah. And so back here and I didn't want to tackle anything too heavy. I yep. just didn't have that in me. <laughs> so I thought we'd do like a questions answered, put mm. that out there and had 50 odd questions here. So we're going to work through some of those. Um, Not all of them. Some. Of some. Them. Uh, and we'll see how we go. See how we go. And some of them are going to be one word answers. Yep. And of course, whenever I ask anybody got any questions, the yep. first question is- what are the dimensions of the box? (laughs) (laughs) For anybody now, like a lot of people have probably seen my real life answer to that, that I can tell you in in person and you'll know why I'm not going to be answering it now. Mm. Um, We should have like a standard response to that, like ask your mum or something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what are the dimensions of the box? It doesn't matter. That is the, that is the real answer, right? Whatever you can get. Uh, and thank you, Justin, for being the first person to jump in. Who was it? That. Justin Barron. Oh, yeah. Justin. Yeah. It's like a competition, I'll bet. People are like, oh, has yeah. anyone said it yet? Yeah, yeah I'll be the one. Yeah. yeah, perfect. But it's good. At least people are having fun with it. Yeah, it's a good I joke. like the fact that, you know, in the community, it, there's been a lot of fun with. Yeah, it's a good joke. Yeah, it is. But I still legitimately, actually just 10 minutes ago before we came in here, someone sent me a commented on one of the videos and it's a legit question of what are the dimensions of the box. Yeah. Okay. Emma Murdoch, what mm-hmm. are the best techniques for bite development in young puppies? And she had to edit this because I then, if you look here, I said neither of those are questions, Emma, because she's asked two things that were just statements. They were not questions. And then she's <laughs> gone in and edited her reply. Oh, Emma. What are the best techniques for bite development in young puppies? There's a book on this called Controlled Aggression. Read that. It's a Bible on it. It's got everything you could need to know. And yep. Head over, listen to Jerry's podcast, which is basically him like going through sections of the book, get on his Patreon. There's video on how to do it. Yep. There, there's no, I don't think that we can answer that question any better than he has in the Well, considering that, book. you know, they're producing dog after dog after dog that's proven in all of those applications. I mean, everyone has their slight twist on it, but as you said, why reinvent the wheel yep. when somebody has already painstakingly spent their life crusading around the world, finding out, what the best method is and applying that to their own technique and changing it, manipulating as they go. Exactly. Yep. All right. So then Emma says, how do you use the e-collar as a true aversive when your dog has been taught that e-collar pressure brings on a reward? Mm -hmm. I don't know that anybody actually has that problem. I think that's a theoretical problem. I doubt that anybody who has managed to significantly to actually implement to their dog that the e-collar is a, a activation tool yep. has ever encountered the problem of being able to use it as an aversive because when you know when we talk about like there's a constant line that we say in that the hope can never outweigh the struggle. Yep. Well, if you want the e-collar to be an aversive, you just flip that around yep. and the struggle outweighs the hope and the mm-hmm. dog gives up under the pressure and that is an aversive. So yep. It's based on level uh, per dog. Yeah, and, exactly. And also understanding of what operant conditioning is. Yeah. You know, if the dog truly understands it. Here's one of the important things. I know we've discussed this on the show plenty of times before, but it warrants discussing one more time, is that for a dog to understand what is an aversive, it has to also understand what it's doing wrong in connection with the aversive mm-hmm. as well. It's the same thing as reinforcement. The dog needs to understand what it actually is being reinforced for and on the flip side of that, what am I being punished for? Yeah. In order to perform more behavior or less of the behavior. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, but like I say, I don't know that that's actually a, a problem that anybody's ever encountered. Well, people who don't know much about remote trainers might. No, but people who actually have their dog using the e-collar 
for activation. Yeah. I doubt that anybody who has successfully managed to do that mm-hmm. is actually then stuck with the issue of, okay, how do I use this as an aversive? Yep. I don't think that's a thing that happens. Okay. Lisa Hildebrand, what have been your favorite moments doing the podcast and or what has been your favorite unexpected thing that has come out of doing the podcast? Favorite moment? The favorite moment? Yeah. I'd have to say Roger Brandy's. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty a big deal. It was a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I've heard you for years and you've been teaching it in the NDTF and everything and been quoting him. All the time. Um, mm. I've got passages that I use on explaining dominance and aggression. Mm-hmm. They're both from Roger Brandy's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So meeting him for you, big yeah. deal. Yeah, it was a big deal. Uh, and having Bart on the show, that was great. Mm-hmm. The fact that he came on twice. When he was in Australia, you brought him out here and, you know, like he's been kind enough to join us in the studio live. Yeah. That was very kind of him to do that To mm-hmm. You know, I know he's a busy guy, but he enjoyed it. And we enjoyed it. That was a nice moment. So does that come under your favourite moments or is that your unexpected thing that has come of doing the podcast? That was certainly an unexpected thing. I didn't expect to have Bart Bellin sitting in the living room, hanging yeah. out with us, drinking beers. And well, I don't think he drank a beer, but he certainly hung out with us and did the podcast. That was yeah. awesome. Yeah. I often say, like, you know, Bart's a friend I speak to him all the time and I, I, he's been a mentor to me and really I owe him unbelievably large debt of gratitude uh, for everything where I'm at in my life at the moment. But I also kind of laugh that the first time I picked him up from the airport is something akin to sending a 14-year-old girl to pick up Justin Bieber. <laughs> <laughs> and I saw I saw that in you when we were uh, sitting with, with Roger, Roger and yeah. I looked at you and I was like, oh, that's how I looked. I when couldn't I slap a smile off the my face. The I, I don't think anybody could have. Yeah. 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 And plus that he's a diver and a boat captain and everything. It just, you know, kind of just everything. I thought, yeah, we, we're best friends. <laughs> my favorite unexpected thing i'm going to be a bit lighter is if you've just in the intro if you listen to our latest ad with jason Furman, (laughs) (laughs) when we rang him out of the blue to try and get some kind of funny soundbite from him and he called us a pair of (laughs) (laughs) and i was like you could not have scripted that any better. Oh, that was hilarious. Like that. Thank you, Jason, for proving our point yep. perfectly. That people we should just not, go to your website. Like I know that it seems like we set that up, but that was just we thought, oh, we'll put the phone on private and call Jason and see what happens. Uh, and that's what happened. It's actually funny, you know, like I've, I actually have had a few people think that Jason and I aren't friendly with each other, <laughs> uh, but it couldn't be further from the truth. Like we, I, we actually respect each other a hell yeah, of a lot. Yeah. And that's just, that's for people overseas, that's Australian banter. Yeah. Like if you, the more you rag a friend, the, the more you like them. Yeah, yeah. Like silence to each other in Australia is the worst thing. Yeah. Like yeah. if you, if you're with a group of people and you're being silent to someone that's, that speaks volumes. Yeah. But if you're ragging a mate out, that's like uh that's it's like love. Yeah, I think yeah. that that's not just Australia. I think that's worldwide, but it I is. think it's uh it's accentuated in Australia. Yeah, mm. but I think it's also something that is not as common as it, it maybe once was. Like it, yeah, because of the political correctness and yeah. everything. Yeah. And and so it sort of happens behind closed doors more yep. than what we like there's no closed <laughs> doors here, right? <laughs> One of the other things that I think is unexpected that I do like as well is that when I read through some of the ratings, people really love how real we've kept the show. Mm. Like the fact that we haven't bended over for people and stuff like that. Like they keep saying, Pat and Glenn, keep it real. It's it's really nice to see. Mm. And thank you because there have been a bit of a, a spate of new reviews coming through lately, like five-star reviews. Oh, really? So, yes, 
there's a, an app that reads iTunes around the world that reports to me on what right. people are saying. I'll show you later. It's all, it's pretty awesome. Like, yeah, cool. you know, it's just five-star review, five-star review, five-star review, five-star review. That's cool. So thank you. Thank you very much to the people who took time to, to write that. It's nice to read it, and it's also very nice to receive it as well. Yeah, for sure. All right, Jules Mobs, what's the best ways to train a dog that isn't interested in food or game? One who looks at you and goes, nah, can't be asked. Well, I would argue that that dog – see, like, uh, value is related to scarcity. Yeah. So when a dog says, I can't be bothered, it's because he's got something else he'd rather be doing. And especially for food, then this is where we talk about existential food. And mm-hmm. that um, this is something that I, I talk about a lot and I think I'm often misunderstood is that when we're training with existential food, I never, ever withhold food from the dog. Never in, never in my life have I said to a dog, I am going to not feed you. Mm. That doesn't happen. What I do is I give dogs opportunities to eat and it's up to them to take it. And I don't beg a dog to eat and I give him windows of opportunity. Yep. Now, like I have a four-year-old and I can say to him, if you don't eat your dinner, there will be no food later, but I can't say that to a dog. So the only way I can convey to him that there will be no food later is if there is no food later. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of people who like, if you have the right dog and there's people who are morally or ethically or just fundamentally against existential food in training and they get away with it and that that's totally fine, but they have dogs that are motivated in that way. Right. Yep, exactly. If you have to tap into whether there's two reasons you might want to go with existential food, and that's to tap into the deepest level of motivation that you can to get the maximum amount of power mm-hmm. or to tap into motivation that is seemingly not there. Yep. I think that every dog trainer has probably experienced someone that said, oh, my dog has no food drive. And I say, well, he's alive. Therefore, he has food drive. He has just probably never been hungry and he doesn't understand that there are windows of opportunity. So, you know, again, something that we, we've probably spoken about a fair bit, but, uh, it happens very commonly at, say, at uh, workshops where people will bring out a dog who at home trains great and mm. eats great. But new location, new premises, new yeah, smells, just new, not interested. new stimuli. And, and it's because that dog just says, well, you'll train me at home later because you do every day. So yep. this is an opportunity you're giving me. And uh, as appealing as it is, there's other things that are more appealing to me. Mm. Um, and so I'll, I'll just eat when we get home later. Yep. And in that moment, the right thing to do is not to tap dance and to try and find a way. Like you have a couple of options at that point, right? You can devalue the environment, which is probably not the best step, right? Or you can put in some chicky chicky chucker and try and like increase the motivation towards a dog. And I think I would argue that neither of those things are really the best thing to do. The right thing to do, even though it's the most uncomfortable thing to do is just say, okay, well, we'll try again tomorrow. Yep. And the dog will be way more motivated and he'll try again tomorrow, but you you fuck yourself a little bit if you then go home and, and feed him because yep. then he's right. He's mm. he's 100% correct in that like, oh, okay, I don't need to train for that because I don't need to to pay attention and take food when it's given mm. because I'll get it later. And the people – I understand people don't like that, but then that creates an issue of, well, like I need compliance from my dog all the time. And I don't care what type of dog you have, whether it's a police dog or a sport dog or a noseworks dog or a pet dog, it doesn't matter – there are certain things you need 100% compliance from and like a recall and that kind of thing. You have yep, to like, to keep your dog safe. You have yep. to have that. And people say, oh, well, my dog doesn't go off lead. We still need that because we've all seen equipment fail. We've all seen, you know, things go wrong. You need to be able to recall your dog in order to keep it safe. Mm. And, and if the model with which you train is that the dog says, when I'm out, I may be offered things and I have the opportunity to take it or leave it. 
because I'll get it later. Well, then when you're in an emergency situation, need to recall your dog, the power with which you have motivators for your dog is the best that you will be able to get from your dog in a, in any situation, right? So if your dog won't take food because he knows he'll get it later, he sure as hell ain't going to recall for the opportunity to get food that he knows he's going to get later. Exactly. Like it just gets weaker and weaker as it goes down the chain. Mm. So I think that really to answer your question, Jules, is that if the dog doesn't want it, it's because he has enough of it. Yep. And so you just have to reduce how much he has. Yep. Um, and, you know, we show the dog, this is your opportunity. You don't want to take it. That's fine. And, and of course, that that uncomfortable day has to happen. And then the dog finds out later that night, oh, okay, I, I, I should have taken it today because I didn't get it tonight. So I really would like to stress that because it – it to me is I never ever withhold food from a dog, especially when I'm teaching the dog. Like I talk a lot about using pressure and teaching a behavior at the same time. Like I don't want a dog to learn about pressure and learn about a behavior at the same time. I want the dog to know pressure and th- or know the behavior and then link those two things together. And the fact that food is existential is a form of pressure. So I where people misunderstand me is it's like I don't say to my dog sit and if he doesn't sit. He doesn't get the food and therefore he's not fed for the day. That's too much, right? Now I do that later, but in the learning phase, when I first have a new dog, if I offer the dog, I don't ask for a behavior and then offer the dog food when he doesn't do it. I just offer the food for free. Mm. Like totally, here it is. Yep. Take as much of it as you want. I've clicked, have as much. And if the dog says, I don't want any, I go, okay, well now you're going to learn about the pressure of you must take the food that you're given. And when he understands that, then I can use that pressure to teach behaviors. Mm. And then if he doesn't want to do the behaviors, I can use that pressure to bring on compliance. And in that form, it's a correction where I said, you, you, I asked you to do something. You know very well what you were meant to do. You chose not to do it. And therefore you'll get no reinforcer, but that reinforcer was your meal. And so you'll get no meal. And yep. we'll, tomorrow we'll set up the exact same situation as close as I can. We're going to put you in the exact same circumstance. I'm going to give you the opportunity to get it right. And more than likely he will. But if he doesn't, then we go try and do it again in six hours and six hours or whatever your feeding schedule is. So I think that's important to understand. Like every dog can be motivated. The other thing is, you know, if you want more motivation than food's going to give you, even though that is going to be like an existential motivation, is start experimenting with things that your dog likes, Mm. right? Like you've told that story a million times about the the rabbit's tail. The rabbit's foot. Yeah, the rabbit's foot, right? And Dom's feather. Yeah. Mm. And we've even had dogs that we bloody – kicking a balloon around in that shed, yep. right? Like the, whatever, whatever the takes. dog wants at that time. Yeah, yeah whatever primary reinforcer. Food the, will work, but find the other thing. There's another side to that as well. I mean, your method, I agree, is the best and most polite way to do it. Mm-hmm. It falls in line with the comment that I made a while ago that the best dog trainers don't feed out of dog bowls. Yeah. They feed along the way, you know, like uh, behavior is reward or behavior is access to food, etc., yeah. et cetera, et cetera. On the NDTF course, we also teach a component of guidance where we teach because your way of training, I agree, I think that's the best way to do it. It's ideal situation. I wouldn't dispute it. However, it doesn't fall in line with what a lot of people will do with their dogs, unfortunately. Yeah, normal pet um, people. You're talking about motivated people who enjoy training their dogs yeah. and enjoy coming along and doing further learning and so forth. And hats off to all of you people who are doing that. Because most people who are listening to our show are those type of people. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The majority of people who own dogs, however, aren't that type of person. 
So we teach another component, which is guidance base, which we teach the dog that resistance is futile. When we say sit, we place the dog in a sit position. Mm-hmm. It is done under a little bit of duress. Okay. So it's negative reinforcement based training. Yeah. So we're placing the dog in position. We're not grinding the dog down. Like we're trying to make it like a Tai Chi exercise where the dog is placed and we're thinking about all the angles and the position of the dog and using your body's framework, et cetera, et cetera. However, the dog is placed in position. The reward is the release. Okay, so if the dog wants to take food, it gets double the reward. So I know that sounds a little bit like no-po-po because it is like an old style of, yeah, of no-po-po. Yeah, it is exactly old But no-po-po. the reality of it is is that we, we say to the dog, sit. We then physically manage the dog into position as politely as you possibly can for a guidance-based exercise. It is using compulsion. However, the dog is placed in position we then allow the dog to also learn if the dog struggles, that's not when the release occurs. We release when we get what's called relaxed compliance. Mm-hmm. So when the dog is compliant in position, it's relaxed and calm, that's when the release comes. So eventually what the dog learns is I can do this and when I'm calm, that's when the reward comes to me. So then we release the dog upon that behaviour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a funny one. Like negative reinforcement has such negative connotations where but it shouldn't. Yeah, people, a lot of people don't understand. They don't understand it. Yeah, because that like compulsion is kind of a dirty word, right? Yep. And guidance is a better one. Mm. And I think a lot of what I do uh, with with all dogs, not just pet dogs, but with all dogs, is I like to deal, do what I call deal in the inevitable. Yeah. Right. Like this is happening, and I don't need to force you by like hook or by crook. But there's there's no way out of this, mm. and it doesn't. So like negative reinforcement, even that sounds so bad, but negative reinforcement can be even so minor, delightful yeah but it can be such minor discomfort that's right or it can be like just like the end but of it's your the leash. release it's the relief of the discomfort that's yeah. the crazy thing is that it's like my old catch cry when you go looking for ugly you'll find it like yeah. if people saying oh but it says negative yeah. you know they're reading that word into it which is just mind-boggling that yeah. they can still be stuck on that but like when you have say like an over exuberant dog and you're going to release it into the park and it's sort of bouncing around all over the place mm. like that's the example of like where i deal in the inevitable you are not getting off that leash yeah. until you come down and i'm not gonna i don't need to do anything to you like i'll just outweight you like the nature and, is is negative reinforcement yeah that's and the wheel w- of um the matrix of motivation spins out of control on in within 30 seconds yeah yeah and so like the first rep of that kind of thing can take 10 minutes mm. but the second rep is half and and for like quicker and quicker and quicker once the dog yeah. understands it and there's no need to it's not like you're like physically imposing and forcing the dog into anything you're just like man i'll outweigh you yeah like this is this is the only part it's great because it goes into permanent learning yeah mm. exactly Anyway, all right, that's that question answered. Yeah. Clayton, explain how you manage and use the environment liberty as a reinforcer. So then there was kind of a a thread that came of this that we answered yesterday. Mm -hmm. Um, And what Clayton was talking about in his thread was he was asking, like, his dog, certainly when he frees it to do whatever it wants, it'll sniff along the ground, but that sniffing is a lower value than the food that he has. And so he didn't understand how that liberty could be used as a, a jackpot reinforcer. And and I'd agree, it can't in that moment. That's not a sufficient reinforcer. The idea- Explain liberty for people because that's- Just doing whatever the fuck he wants. Right. right? Okay. So the dog the, the reason do- I want an explanation to it is because it's an American and GRC related word. Yeah. So people understand- Yeah, it is. Okay. Well, well freedom, right? Like, yeah. So the dog okay. literally can do anything it wants. Yeah. And within the bounds of, you know, like whatever you've taught the dog, like yep. w- whatever's safe to do. Yeah. And I use that. I, I have a marker that releases to it, and it really is just a free command. Dog can do anything he wants. Go be a dog. Mm. 
And in some circumstances, that is the highest value reinforcer that I have available to me. But in others, it's terrible, right? So like uh, I would not say in his example, his dog wanted the food not to be told to go and do whatever it wants. And so I'd say that's a bad reinforcer to use at that moment. Yep. The only the only reason I would use it is when what the dog wants to do is creating conflict over what I want him to do. Yep. So w- what is interesting is you see a lot of people who have dogs that say are friendly and social and can play with other dogs or they like to sniff or the, whatever it is your dog wants to do and you're trying to stuff food into the dog's face and we'll trying- yeah, and yep. you're trying to say to the dog, no, you do what I ask of you, like mm. the sit, stand, whatever, in order to earn this food that you don't want, yep. right? So at that time when there's creating conflict, and this is where most people would say that that dog is distracted and I'm trying to change the language around that, and that is not a distraction. That is a motivator. Yep. Your dog is motivated to go do that, so use that in that time. But like for my dog, if, I am in a, if I'm in a training room, like if I'm out in the training shed and I have the ball on me, and I say to my dog, do whatever you want. He's going to attack me for that ball because mm. like, he wants the ball. Yep. There's nothing else in that room that he wants. But if I'm in on a field and there's the urine of a bitch in heat and I have the ball, then I say, go do whatever you want. He might go and would find out on the, at the day, but he would then likely want to go and smell the urine of that bitch in heat. So it's only the only time I would use liberty or the freedom as a reinforcer is when it is creating a conflict for me in my actual training. So then I go, okay, well, that's what you want. That's what we'll use as a reinforcer. Mm. The only time that I would set it up and intentionally use it when it isn't creating conflict is to proof myself against things that will happen. So like I regularly talk about how I seek out whenever someone's got a bitch in heat, I'm like, okay, I want to know where it, where your dog empties out. I want it to happen on the field and now I can intentionally use that as a reinforcer. Empower your dog up. Yeah. Mm. So that when I enter the field, the dog smells and goes, okay, yep. The, it's here and yep. I don't know it's there. Like if, if it's there on trial day, if there mm. is a, uh, a dog and he goes before me or whatever, he knows he can smell it and he goes, okay, that is what's going to be my reinforcer. And it's gone from something that was going to create conflict because if I don't let my dog sniff that as a reinforcer in the past, it doesn't occur to him that I may let him sniff that as a reinforcer this time. And it's just the same as when I enter the field, when there's a decoy there, that isn't a problem for me. That's great. My dog goes, okay, that's what I'm going to bite. Even whether he does or doesn't, it doesn't matter. That's what he thinks is possible. If he enters the field and smells the urine and I've never in the past allowed him to smell the urine under command for doing the work, then it doesn't occur to him that that could be possible. And now we're going to have conflict. Mm. He's going to, I would rather do that than what you're asking for me because that's a higher payment, but he's had it in the past. So it's not an issue. Yep. So that's, I think, managing liberty is only do it if the dog wants liberty. Mm. If you if you say to the dog, go do whatever he wants, and he stares at you saying, I want what you have, well, that's a great problem to have, right? Yep. Continue reinforcing the dog with what you have. <sighs> All right. Good anything, explanation. Anything to add on that? No, I think you explained it well. Yeah. Cool. No point in. Um, all right. Casey Mueller? Muller? How would you pronounce that? M-U-L-L-E-R. Mueller? Mueller. Mueller. Mueller, Mueller, anyone, anyone, <laughs> Mueller. Box feeding question. Here we go. I've listened to episode four a couple of times and listened to the Patreon episode as well. So I thought I had a hand on the box feeding stuff, but recent video Sam Tabar posted of a Rottweiler from one of the recent workshops in Texas confused me a little. It looks like the pressure is being applied while the dog is eating the food. Dog eating food, pressure applied while dog's still eating food. Then more food is dropped in. Is that correct? 
is that because it was the first time the dog was doing the box feeding? Because I've been waiting until there is no more food in the box and the dog has its head in the empty box. Apply pressure, time gap, then more food, then reward. Yeah, you're right. So like uh, this is the issue of people being allowed to film at workshops and then posting things out of context. So I was working Sam's dog, he's rotting in the box. And the dog was fine, right? So it wasn't like it's a, a problem dog that we have to work through. The dog was stable. And I was showing the sequence to people. Mm-hmm. But what I was actually doing to the dog is really not pressure at all, right? So which is why I was comfortable to do it. I was just touching the dog on the back end, which it could give two shits about. And yep. then I'd throw the food in. So it was a demonstration for everybody there about like, this is the sequence and how it happens. But we didn't have a dog there that well, certainly not his dog. It was his first session. It didn't yep. know how to indicate. So you were just talking the theory. Yeah. So th- mm. we were like doing two weeks. That That's what we should be doing in two weeks when the yep. dog can do it. Yeah. But what I was doing to the dog was such a low level of pressure or maybe even not pressure at all, but it served as a demonstration. Yeah. Right. Rather than me saying, now I would apply pressure and, and do I could do it. And I, I think I was just touching the dog on the back legs yeah. and throwing the food in. Because you're right. But also like, you know, again, this relates to sort of value. Like it, to some dogs, like a lot of people, what I think I see a lot is, People under challenging their dogs. Mm-hmm. Like, so that dog, you know, I could, it, I'm literally just touching a dog on the back end. Like yep. that's, to, that's padding. That's yeah. not pressure. That's the, nice. The, I guess it's one of the things that I struggle with when I watch people doing complex skills related behavior as well is like, they'll stall the dog when the dog is capable of going much farther forward. Yeah. And that's what I'll say to people like, stop stalling the dog, like go forward. The dog is saying to it, it's always dictated by the dog. The dog drives the action. Yeah. And that's when you should say to the, to yourself, okay, well, I don't need to be at step three because the dog is at step six. You can go to step six already. It's yeah. fine. The dog is ready to be there. It's when the dog is not ready to be there and you're trying to stretch it out. Like when the dog needs to be at three and you're demanding six, then you're doing poor work with your dog. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. It sort of relates again to Emma's question actually up the top on bite development. Like it's something that we sometimes see. There's plenty of people that are in the sweet spot. I guess it's like a flow state, right? Yeah. Like where some people – ask too much of their dog too soon. Yep. But then there's some people who are so obsessed with like- Staying on a flirt pole when they need to be on solids. And maybe they're kind of boring their dog. And so they're looking for a level of intensity that will tell them it's they're they're ready to go to the next piece of equipment or step or whatever. And they've already passed that level of intensity and now the dog's kind of bored. So Mm. you're never going to see what you're looking for. You're always going to be sort of pushing for more, but the dog gave that, you didn't notice it or whatever, you didn't read it. Um, And now the dog is under-challenged and he's going to not perform the way that he's capable of. And that's the idea of flow state, right? Is that you're always a little bit bit challenged, but you're still like moving competently ahead mm. and not over-challenged where you're taking a huge step back and just not under-challenged. So you're, you're not, not ready. you're not highly stressed or highly bored. You're bouncing in between the two states. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've seen that quite a bit with like people have a, a young dog, say 11, 12, 13 months, and he's a real powerful dog and they're still working him on the sleeves because they're like, okay, I want to get grip and everything developed. But the grip is good and but it's like, no, like the last dog was – at this stage for six months and, but this dog's stronger and better and he's ready for a bigger challenge. Right. And so at three months, he's going to start to, he's still going to bite, still going to do well, but he's going to plateau and he's no longer going to be challenged. And, and the dog then becomes bored. And and bored's a funny word because it kind of infers that the dog's 
not enjoying it, right? When he's enjoying it, but he's yeah. not challenged. He's he not should, challenged. That's yeah. yeah, that's the word. There should be yeah. some risk of failure in everything. It, it should that you never do. be determined by age or by the dog before. It's yeah. always by the individual. Yeah, the everything has to be. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just a caveat on that whole point on bite work as well, because we probably didn't explain this before, and it, it will be in Jerry's book, no doubt. And we most certainly have discussed this in the past, but teething issues don't do bite work. Don't start tearing teeth out of your dog's head. Even playing with like little flirt poles or what are those rope bones sort of things where people get them and the dogs grab them and they pull them hard and then Mm. the teeth start coming out. Every decent trainer around the world knows that a great dog with super potential can be ruined in that moment. So during teething times, just, you know, give your dog a a soft bone to chew on, let it work its own teeth out in its own time and then come back and revisit it then. Yeah. Just on that, there's plenty of people who are exceptional world-class trainers that do do bite work, very specific type during the teething period and they get away with it. But I, and then that sort of gives permission to other people to do it. And what I would say is like, you don't have their skill level, right? Do as I say, don't do as I do. Yeah. Because you can do it. There's people yep. that do it and it's fine. Mm. And and they have video of themselves doing it and the dogs turn out fantastic, but they have a level of skill and the ability to read a dog and a finesse. And You're talking about your one percenters. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Like I know, I'm pretty sure Ivan does that. Yep. And and it's a period in time where he teaches the dog to use its back teeth when it has no front teeth. Right? That's right. But Ivan but, knows what he's looking yeah, for and he's right. been in through this rodeo before. And has the, the capacity to do that. Right. Yep. Like there's, there's that's a lot. not his one and only dog. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, no, no. But all like, has the skill to be able to determine which teeth the dog is using when yep. he's doing it. You know what I mean? Like I think a lot of people um, see that and go, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm good to go. And it's like, eh, mm. maybe not. And, and and for that couple of months, like just the, the It's risk, not worth it. Yeah, for the, yeah. For, the aver- for the lay person. The juice isn't worth the squeeze. Yeah. Mm. And there's so many other things you could be doing in that, in that time. Yeah. And, and this is – I get it because I'm that person that is like, well, what do I do? And I know and you get impatient. You think, but just do some obedience during that time. Yeah. Or the hold. Like, so my dog can hold, like I have no problem teaching the dog to hold a, a PVC pipe while he's yeah, got hardly any fine. teeth because he's just learning the mechanics. So yeah. you're, you're still moving forward. Your grip is still improving. You're putting in things that, uh, the hold is a good one. I like risk. that. Yeah. I think that's a good time filler. Yeah. There's very little risk. Yep. All right. And then uh, I won't read all the answers to that. Sam's basically explained what I was doing anyway. Leanne Ray, who's just got a new puppy, and I'm super excited about uh, seeing that little Doberman puppy. Where am I seeing that? Vegas next month. Mm-hmm. There's a plug for that. Michael Carpenter, get in touch, Sin City Working Dogs. Um, Pit Boss. Yeah. Mm. So we're in Vegas next month. Anyway, so Leanne Ray says, how to develop bite work on your own for those that live far away from civilization. So we'll cover that. And I think – it's a play, right? So like you're playing tug, uh, you know, putting your own dog on a back tie, teaching the, the back dog- tie is an important aspect here. Yeah. Mm. And teaching the dog to target and you can do so much grip development, bite development by yourself. Uh, I've, I've watched a lot of arguments go down online on this and I, I tend not to get involved. My theory on this is, and certainly it's what I, you know, I didn't make any, I've never made anything up in my life. This is all what I was taught by people. And so the earliest imprinting on this is from Sam and, mm-hmm. If you have a highly skilled decoy, you should not do your own bite development. Yep. But not everybody has. Like, here we go, right? So, Janet Edwards lives with Sean Edwards. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So, she should not do her own bite development because Mm. she has one of the best people at doing it right there in the house, Mm -hmm. right? But 
I don't have that. And like she can wake up at two in the morning and say, hey, we're going to, I want to go do bite work. And Sean will go do the bite work with yep. her, right? Um, but precious few people on the planet have that. Mm-hmm. And something similarly, it's because I, I, that's kind of hot in my mind at the moment because what I noticed at the PSA Nationals was there's a lot of um, dog training couples that do exceptionally well. And I think that's why, yeah. right? Like you look at like Kelsey and Kyle Murphy, friends of mine in the States, both like super nice people, like really salt of the earth, amazing people, but they're a dog training husband and wife team, yep. right? And Cole's a good decoy. Yep. So like they've got the access to that. Mm. And unless you're going to get married to a decoy, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, you're going to have to do some development your own. Yep. And I think there's absolutely no problem doing that. So, but what you can never do by, and like I work my own dog in the suit, no problem, right? Even now I do it and mm. I prefer not to, but I, I do what you can never do is finish a dog, yep. right? Like what I can teach my dog is how to target. I can teach him how to grip. I can do all those kind of things. Mm. I can teach him, you know, I, I I taught my dog. One thing is funny. My dog's transport is a prettier picture of healing than his healing against me because I talk about like direct and indirect rewards, right? So uh, his healing was taught 100% indirect reward. So he's kind of like chose his own head position and that's in sort of a coil looking around at me and, mm-hmm. and the ball might be, you know, anywhere, right? But uh, so it's an indirect reward right from the start. I shaped it. Yep. Uh, his transport I taught on me, but I was a direct reward because he was, look. I want him to look at my armpit and he can bite my armpit. Yep. <laughs> so he actually has more of an IPO style prancing heel yep. because that's like, it's the reinforcer. And I did that because I, he'll only ever transport on a decoy. There's there's no need to do it any other way. Yep. But what you can never do, so there's loads of stuff you can do in developing your own dog. Teach the targeting, teach the grip. Uh, and even if you don't want to be putting on the bite suit, you can hold wedges and stuff in the position where it would like, you know, let the dog fly through in the position where he would bite you. So hold it, like if you're teaching a, a left bicep dog, yep. hold your uh, tug regularly up in front of your left bicep, right? As he comes in to make entry. One thing that I probably would, explain there or insert into that comment is if you don't know what you're doing, invest the time with somebody who does know what they're doing that, that can show you what to do in that lapse. Yeah. So let's say, for example, you've got three months where you know I won't be able to train with somebody, then go and learn with somebody the, the like the basic fundamentals of how not to fuck it up. Yeah. So you can present properly. You can, as Pat was saying, you know, you can show the dog where to bite, how to target you know, where you're looking for placement, how deep you want the dog to bite, et cetera, et cetera. So you can incrementally improve your game as you're going. So when you actually do get access to a decoy, you've done the preliminaries to start with and you've got a dog that's already well and truly on the way down the path. Yeah. And so what I would caution, and I just never, ever, ever want my dog to think that he can relieve stress by biting me. Mm-hmm. So I never do, you can't do too much drive channeling and you certainly can't ever work your own dog in defense. Yes. A- and I've seen people do that yeah. and, and it has disastrous yeah, results. That's a good way to end in conflict. Yeah. Mm. Because here's the picture, right? Like, so your dog frontally receives, like from you, your dog frontally receives pressure. He turns off that pressure by biting you. Yeah. Right. Now you are at the other end of the leash, your dog receives pressure frontally by someone else and there's a very good chance he's going to turn around and attempt to turn off that pressure by biting you. Um, so there, there's way more risk than there is reward. So I think that you can teach a dog shitloads by doing your own group work. Is it, is it 
The best thing to do? No, fuck no. The best thing to do is be married to a dick. (laughs) But can you finish a dog? No. I I don't think you can finish a dog, nor is it safe to. Yeah, especially with high drive dogs with high intensity. Uh, Yeah. yeah, There is a cautionary explanation there that I think people should be careful of. Be careful of. Yeah. (laughs) All right. I reckon we've answered that one. Ian Warren, how would you build compulsion to complete a behavior without using an e-collar? Might be more of a Patreon episode. A quick question that might suit the podcast better is, well, actually, we can answer that one. Like, how do you build compulsion to complete a behavior without using an e-collar? Is you can use pressure of any kind, right? Mm. And and oh, you slip leads. Yeah, I, I love using slip leads. Yeah. Uh, in fact, you know, Ian, I actually don't like to use an e-collar to teach behaviors because you're regularly you're not in control of the outcome mm. of what the dog would do. So when I use pressure to bring on a behavior, certainly in a learning phase, I prefer that pressure to be of a mechanical source yep. so that if something goes wrong, I am actually in control of what the dog does because the thing about compulsion or, or negative reinforcement as a whole is that when that pressure it comes off, that is the learning moment. Mm-hmm. And whatever it takes to get that pressure off is what will be reinforced and therefore repeated. So I think it's very uh, using an e-collar to straight up teach something. You can do it, and certainly I have done it. But there are better, safer ways to do it. And so the e-collar, really, from my point of view, in that way, is more of a finishing tool mm. rather than a starting tool. So you can use any any tool. Yeah, really. you go through a very in your post seminar that you're doing. Uh, you go through a very good and sound explanation on the dog finding the right level. Mm. Like your explanation of that is is very salient. It makes very good sense when you talk it through. So if you haven't been to one of Pet Seminars before, you definitely want to go along. Just in, in Vegas next month. In Vegas next month. There's, <laughs> there's a few coming up. So you, you definitely want to try and make the time to actually go and listen to him because um, we're not going to do it on the show because really that's part of his whole presentation. But you really need to go along and listen to what he says about you and the dog finding the correct level and what you perceive as a correct level and then what the dog perceives as a correct level. Yeah, they're different And that's things. that's the danger that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. All right, and then his, the second part of his question is, as pet professionals, we usually get involved with helping people after they've got a puppy. Mm. How can we engage with people earlier to influence their choice of dog and help avoid bad decisions and dogs being surrendered slash euthanized? Listen to our podcast. At the moment, that's fairly topical with the US <laughs> canine hero and now everyone wanting to get a Mally. Yep. Um, yeah, it's a tough one. The thing is, you know, like I, I'm, I get that people shouldn't, the average person shouldn't be owning a high-powered dog, right? But also, like, it's free world, man. <laughs> like, you you can only try and influence people so much. And I feel like the more, like, see, at the moment, that is really hot topic, right? It's all over Facebook. Everybody's like, you know, don't get a Mally, blah, 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 blah. Well, they're just, there's a lot of people worried about the Malinois taking on the stigma that the pit bull took on. Yeah. Well, so I'm more worried – tell you my concern is not over people getting a dog they can't handle is I'm way more concerned over the watering down of the breed to make dogs people can handle. Yeah. That's what I'm concerned yeah, about. Exactly. Right. I yeah. am, I'm way, I could give a shit. If someone brings a dog into their home and it becomes too much of them and they need to move it on, like a good Mally ain't going into rescue. He'll be in rescue for five minutes before someone else we'll then realizes like, into law yeah, this dog needs yep. to work. Right. Mm-hmm. And he'll have a great life. So I'm not worried about the dog. That, yep. that, 
And, and and if someone makes a bad decision and gets a wrong dog and it destroys their house, well, fuck them. Too bad, right? Yep. What I am way more concerned about is people wa- continuing to water down the breed more and more and more so that they can live happily in people's homes. Yep. Right? And then it makes it's going to make our job That's even harder very, and harder. That's a very, very good point. Yeah. Because it's already happened with the Shepherd and the Rottweiler and the Doberman. Yeah, exactly. All the working breeds. Exactly. What I've seen as a change in those breeds already in the time, in the term that I've served as a trainer in sports and bite work and so forth has been incredibly disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. And what, you know, so we see that now, like you see uh, people get, ex- I see people post a video of a Roddy that has, you know, done something that 500 Mallies have done the same day and mm. everybody's like, whoa, a Roddy can do yeah, it. it's a unicorn Roddy. Yeah. because yeah. It, And it used to be that that was just 30 years breed. ago, you would see fantastic Roddies. You could pull- you know, like 10 out in a day and they would all be great working dogs. Yeah. Um, those days are, are long behind us. Yeah. And so that that's my concern over all that. Like, to be honest, I really, if someone doesn't want to heed warnings and they think, hey, I'm going to go get a military working dog style dog and have it in my house. Like, I, I just am not inclined to talk people out of that because I did that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and here we are. Worked yeah. out fine. Yeah. Right. Mm. Uh, so I, I just feel like you we don't have the right to tell people you can't own that type of dog. Mm. But what I am very worried about is people then going, okay, well, I see a hole in the market to breed shitty ones, right? That are pet quality. Yeah. It's like, no, just get a different type of dog. Get yep. a pug. Yeah. I would like a pug, I feel. I feel. I've had a pug before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What was its name? Stimpy. Stimpy. Yeah. yeah. That's a good name for a pug. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't and wanna... my favorite pug is uh, Bumble that uh, oh, yeah. Mar- Marissa has over yeah. in Canada. I don't Have you seen the bat dog clip that she did? No. Oh, you got to say it's hysterical. Her pug, Bumble, which is a female pug, is dressed up as Bane and it's got a little Bane mask on and everything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know this will upset some of our purebred people, mm. but some of the best little pet dogs I've ever seen are Jugs, Jack Russell pugs. Oh, yeah. Yep. Like, so the, the brackiness is much reduced. Yep. They're not fat. Yep. They're very well put together, social, happy, confident little dogs from a pet shop. Look, the purebred people have done themselves a mischief in a lot of ways. And I mean, you know, we've had contempt for them on the show before. Uh, and it's rightfully so when you're seeing dogs where their eyes can't fit in their head anymore and they're, you know, they can't walk five steps without choking and so forth. I mean, I own French bulldogs. Thankfully, I've got well-bred ones that don't die when they run around the backyard. Like, they tear us here after each other all over the place. Mm-hmm. They're in pretty good condition mm-hmm. uh, as far as I'm concerned. I've got one that will balance on a ball for 10 seconds now, you know, so they're actually doing really well as breeds. But there's some other ones that are just absolute disasters. Yeah. You know, but that it extends into other purebred breeds as well, you know, like yeah. the character, temperament, and physical disposition of the dog. I know – you know, as a caveat, I know people in breed clubs, I know people in the Rottweiler club who really are trying to do the right thing by, you know, removing inherent genetic diseases and so forth and are good people with good intentions on on fixing a lot of these fucking monstrosities that are getting around. But there's so many more people outside that that just couldn't give a shit. Yeah. Uh, and it's more about the monetary side of things than anything else. Yeah. And I know that's a soapbox topic, but it's it's as disappointing for them as it is for us because they are good people. You and I know stacks of good people in breed clubs that are really trying, you know, as much as they can to do the right thing. But, you know, there's a there's an endless supply of people who won't. Yeah. It's such a bizarre thing to me that there's like – closed stud books. I just don't understand that. Like mm. you're guaranteed an inevitable failure 
at the end. Yep. Like it's we're where who knows where that is, but with every breed that you won't allow a true outcross, uh, we're just headed to an inevitable point of of madness. Mm. Like that I don't see how like I'm an idiot and I understand that. <laughs> right? <laughs> like how do we not understand that? When you're just gonna continue to uh line breed and then inbreed and and the inevitable end is is and the weird thing is, is all the dogs were outcrossed anyway. The, the ha- like, yeah, every single designer breed has been outcrossed originally. Yeah, yeah, they have to. Mm. So yeah, anyway, that's anyway it. that we'll, we'll burn in hell for for mentioning yeah. that. How dare you, sir? Mm. All right, this is my favorite question, mm-hmm. Eric Aguirre. Would you rather one thousand ladybug sized Remcos or one <laughs> Remco sized ladybug? <laughs> Uh, I would take a thousand ladybug-sized Remcos. I feel like that would be hilarious, like a swarm of tiny little Mallies. And I just, I'm worried about funny, my capacity it? to care for a thousand dogs, mm. but I would just place them with other people. Yep. And and we would have giant play dates. I would rent whole fields <laughs> and get because Remy's actually super social dog. So You're kind imagine, of like having a Jag Terrier. Yeah. Mm. Well, but he's super social with other dogs, mm. and so I imagine a thousand of him that are very small in a in a field together would be hilarious. What would, would you take? Be. Um, I'm happy with one ladybug and one Remco. Oh uh, no, that's not an answer to the question. <laughs> what would you rather? A thousand ladybug sized Remcos. Yeah, yeah. I think that a, a Remco yeah. sized ladybug. I actually, would be I, I to manage Remco's not my dog, and I actually dearly love him. Um, I mean, I've known him since he's been a a little baby. Um, He stays here all the time when Pat travels or, you know, anytime we're doing things. So, I mean, I see the dog every single week. So, him and I are actually good friends. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he bit my shin the other day and and fucking hurt like hell. Yeah. But yet, um, that dog and I are really good mates. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I I adore him. I adore his personality. He's a funny dog. He's got a very, very incredible outlook to life. Like, he loves life. He's just... He's a comedian inside a warrior's body. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a very good way to yeah. put it. Yeah. Mm. He's a very, while we're sort of talking about my dog, he, he is perfect for me because he's- You and him are actually akin to each other because yeah. you're a comedian inside yeah, a warrior's he, body too. I, you know, I used to say to people, I think we talked about this with Bertie one time when people say, oh, people are just like their dogs. And I always go, I don't see that, right? But yep. he is me. Yeah. But he's so uh, silly a lot of the time. Yep. Like, and he does such silly things on purpose. Like, yep. here's, here's something silly for you to laugh at me doing. And, like, he'll even – he – just yesterday, right, he jumped on the couch to go, like, to sit down and this pillow – moved from underneath him as he was getting there and he fell at like a weird angle and was sort of bent in half. <laughs> and instead of moving, he, he kind of, no, he it. kind of barked at me to like make sure I saw him. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and then I come over and I'm laughing at him. And I, so I'm sure that it's like, a, a if you want to go into the behavior of it, I'm sure that he's something like that has happened in the past and he's been reinforced by me coming over and laughing at him and engaging yep. with him. And he's, he's read the play and going, Oh, <laughs> Pat loves this. Yep. And he'd like, hey, hey, come and check me out. And he was bent upside down, sort of stuck in this weird wedge. <laughs> and so he just is a very fun, easygoing dog. Yeah, and, he's a good dog. And he's a bad example. Like I, I get when people talk about, you know, oh, the Mallies and 
people wanting to get them. Like looking at my Insta or his Instagram is a really bad example because like I- It highlights the ownership of of Like the easy ownership of Mountain And he is by comparison because he's not serious. I have no, well, he's serious, but not like in a, a, what's the right way to put it? Like he's not, he's not a dog that you'd worry about coming back at you. Yep. All right. Um, And so he- he goes with the flow. He endures my mistakes. He is a, a trial for a lot of people. You know, he teaches a lot. Like one of the things that I was talking about sort of at PSA Nationals is some of the smashing hits from some of the dogs. And, and even like at our club, right, some of the dogs like Dom's dog goes through you like a freight yep. train. But it's because he's never been jammed. He's had really like, I mean, I developed him, but it, like I, not saying that I've done an amazing job, but like I've never jammed the dog, never. Mm. So it doesn't occur to him that he could be jammed. He's yep. never, that dog's never bitten an inexperienced decoy. Yeah. Remy has been jammed so many fucking times by mm. so many people. And he can, like now he can tend to read the play. Like he'll look at, like he'll watch a decoy move and be like, okay, like you know what you're doing. Like I'm coming at you hard. And then he'll see his other people and be like, all right, I, I know what's going to happen here. And he comes at him slow and sort of is almost polite. So that's a real pain in the ass for me as a to have as my competition dog. But it's great for teaching people. Yeah. Like great. Mm. And he's a good one, you know, like he's a safe dog. So safe. And how many times like he's we put people in the chair to be bit by him when they're getting their first ever bite. Yep. And he'll bite them as, you know, properly and you know, really hard and, and like but his he does, placement's good. He's targeting's like his, perfect. Yeah. And then when I out him right in front of them, he while people are sitting in the chair, he then looks them square in the face, right? And like almost smiling at them. <laughs> and people get really scared. And then from there I tell him to rebite and he like moves back down to the arm and regrips. So it really shows people like, don't worry, like you this dog's gonna he knows what he's doing, he's gonna help you get through. Yeah. Right. Unlike so, Randy who bites you in the nuts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, he's a good dog he's a great dog he's super livable but the caveat to all of that and this is the like you know this is what you tell your friends that are thinking about getting a mallee is he can't stay with my wife Mm. like if he doesn't work he goes crazy yeah he the reason he has the reason he is so chilled out and spends most of his day asleep on the couch and is totally livable and yeah she doesn't know how to drive him like you do no and, and but like Precious few people can, right? Yep. So he needs to be he needs to be blasted yep. once a day. Um, it's the same with Narelle with Randy. Like she cannot put um, drops in his ears because occasionally he gets a funky ear. Yeah, she can't do it. Like she just says to me, he will not let me do it. Yeah, um, and, and 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 it's not that he needs to be physically exercised. It's that he has to be challenged. Right. He has to he has to bite. Like yep. it, it, like it's one of those things when you talk about like a good mallee is gonna bite whether you want him to or not. So yeah, you have to provide the things that. Like, so it's just like play tug, that kind of stuff, yep. right? Outlets. Yeah, exactly. He needs his outlets. Yep. And like, even just putting him on the mill is not enough. He yep. can't, like, if he, you can run him till he's half dead mm. and 20 minutes later, it's like it didn't happen. He yep. has to be challenged on the mill. Mm. Go fast, slow down, bite this, you missed it. Okay, yep. now here's some. It's not you just know, the physical on, side, it's also the mental application as well. Yeah, totally. Yep. And that's what makes him so livable. Yep. But yeah, he's a good dog. Mm. I like him. I like him too. He's cool. I know I've told you about it. I don't know if I've said on the show before, but. He was staying here one day and you're away and one of the girls was taking him down to the kennels. And I walked out of the house and he saw me and 
like he looked at me and stared at me solidly until I said, hi, Remco. And as soon as I looked at him, he's like, he had this big grin on his face, <laughs> just turned his head away from me and went, ah, he said, hello. Now yeah. I'm done. He just walked off the kennel. Yeah, yeah. I, I walked in, so I was in stitches for yeah, about yeah. fucking five minutes thinking about that stupid grin on his face. Yeah. Because it was just like, he's looking at me going, hey, hey. Acknowledge look me. At, look, look at me. Look at me. And I looked at him. I said, hey, Remy. And he just went, choop. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's funny though. Like, so, you know, he stayed here. He stays here a lot, right? Yeah. But he doesn't even fucking turn around and look at me. When when the girls take him down to the kennel, yeah. they put the slip lead on him yeah. and he's like, see you, bro. And yeah. just walks off, like doesn't even turn around. Nah. Not not a care in the world. Like Valerie, the rare times that she has to stay here. It's like, oh my God. Yeah, she has to get dragged down the kennel and she gives me the eyes of like, I cannot believe you're doing this to yep. me. Like, how dare you abandon me <laughs> like this? Remy's like, see you, bro. Mm. See you if and when you come back, whatever. Yep. I'm happy here. <laughs> Uh, okay, next question. Let me find it. Um, all right. Valeria Parodi Nigra. I don't know if that's correct saying. Uh, on the back of Leanne's question above, if quality dog trainers are not very reliable in your area, what are the safe steps you can take to try and work on leash reactivity and or dog aggression by yourself on a daily basis? And what do you say... What to do, say, in the scenario of off-leash dog coming at you on a walk? Well, that's a bit of a disaster scenario. One of the things that I encourage people to do, if I know that they're going into areas where that is potentially a risk, is take a pop-out umbrella with you. Mm. I can't tell you how many people have come back to me in the past and said, mate, that worked a treat, you know, like I had it in my back pocket. Take a, one of those pop-out umbrellas that shoots out fast and expands quickly it's kind of like a bat shield. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the last defense. And most dogs will, you know, they're cowards when they come bolting at you anyway. And when mm -hmm. they see that, they'll pretty much turn tail and run. Mm. You will get the one percenter of dog, which will just go through the umbrella. However, you're unlikely to meet that on your day-to-day -day walks. Generally, what you'll do is you'll have a dog that will come over with the intention to investigate and even uh, initiate a fight with your dog. But usually when you hold it back and you blast that umbrella in their face or even use it as a shield to stop the dog from getting into you until you call for help until the owner gets there. You generally find that that will give you some peace of mind at least. Um, yeah. For everybody that I know who's done it and has come back and said it saved their, their dog, it's been a great investment. They're very small. You can either stick it in your pants or you can just carry it along as a as an accessory. Mm -hmm. Bit of a pain in the ass if it never happens, but the reality is if you need it that one time and it's there, you're going to thank your lucky stars. Yeah, I think that's perfect for – the unknown scenario. For and it's sure. good if it rains too. <laughs> <laughs> Funny that. Make um, sure you uh, make sure you habituate your dog to it as well before it yeah. happens though. So your dog doesn't get the negative effect of it. So yeah. I do a lot of habituation with my own dogs with umbrellas. I'll start them off, you know, with puppies, I'll just have the umbre umbrella expanded. Um, I'll have the umbrella on the floor, have them being treated around the umbrella, not necessarily climbing over it or making friends with it, just being around it. Then we start to introduce the expansion of it coming out. So without it unfolding, it will be t it will be bound up, so they can just hear the noise of it going clack and like that, which is basically reinforcing for them because not long after that they'll be um, clicked and treated, mm -hmm. um, and we just expand on that further and further and further incrementally until the point where we open it up and they could not give a shit. Mm -hmm. So we do a lot of things like that. We start whipper snippers and lawn mowers and blowers and. Uh, open umbrellas, like an abundance of things. So by the end of it, they have such strong habituation 
uh, that they couldn't give a shit. They mm-hmm. just don't care about it at all. But the, the dog running at you in the park, chances are, unless they were trained by me or Pat, um, they will, you know, they'll see that umbrella come shooting out and they'll go, no, nah, I don't want to tangle with this. Yeah. Because it expands fast, it's rapid, it shoots out, it makes a hell of a noise and it goes vroomph when, when the umbrella opens up. And How's it you- go? Vroomph. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that can be a sound bite for you. <laughs> yeah, next I was gonna phone. say, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it really does. It makes that sudden uh, when it when it expands and you can hear it um, interacting with the the air around it. It makes quite a noise, and the dog generally, and I say generally, is uh, alarmed by it and turns tail. So yeah, that's the effect you want to create. Sort of to go like one step on that is when you do have training opportunities. I think one of the main things. See, every being reserves the right to self-defense, right? Yep. So when your dog, when another dog comes rushing at your dog, you are asking your dog not to be reactive in that moment, right? And the only reason that he should be is because he knows that you will protect him. Yep. So it's only, I think it's only reasonable to say to a dog, you no longer are allowed to protect yourself, right? Yep. Because that's all your dog is going to do. You are no longer allowed to protect yourself, but- that's only reasonable if you're then prepared to protect the dog. Mm. And that's exactly what you're doing with the umbrella. But I think also when you do have opportunities to, you should show that to the dog so that the dog understands like, okay, like, so that's that faith in handler drill and that kind of thing. So the dog understands, okay, like I'm not allowed to uh, display aggression towards other dogs or whatever. I'm not allowed to even, my dogs are not even allowed to fight back, right? I expect my dogs to be bitten by another dog without fighting back. But, they know that I will protect them. I have their best interests at heart. And mm. the only way that they will believe that is if they have witnessed it to be true. Yep. Like a dog doesn't come out of the box knowing that is the case. And so I will set up situations uh, like, that look like exactly what we're talking about. And it is with a, a another reactive dog or whatever. And mm. it's that faith in handler drill. And, we're, and that just that, that crosses over from people to dogs and to whatever yep. where the dog understands, okay, I don't have to take care of this situation because the boss has control of this situation. But also then you need to do it in real life, mm. right? Because then that is, that is how you make a really fucked up problem is when you do all these faith in handler drills where you control the situation. And then on the day when the real life situation has, if you crumble and you've told your dog like, Hey, you're not allowed to fight back, and then in real life you don't actually defend the dog. Now you have you're never coming back from that problem. Yeah, and that's going to create you a whole heap of new problems, relationship, yeah. trust issues. There's going to be a heap of things. So reactivity. Like, there's yeah. a range of issues. And mm-hmm. like my dogs know they're not allowed to fight, but I will protect them, and they yeah. come back into that middle position. And what I've noticed, like I've been places with my dogs off leash where they're allowed to run around, and they just suddenly start hanging around me. That I know there's a fucky dog in this area yeah. because they have chosen. They're like, hey, there's like there's potential shit could go bad. So we're diffusing that situation by coming to you, and now the responsibility is on me to get out of there so that I don't have to actually intervene in something because you know then that means me getting bitten or a dog injured or whatever, right? But read those signs. But I feel like I always worry when I see people doing those faith in handler drills is you need to remember like that is for you as well. That mm-hmm. is for the dog to see that you will defend it. Yep. But it is for you to rehearse defending it, mm-hmm. right? Because if you convince your dog that you'll defend it and then you crumble, <laughs> you have got way bigger problems on your hands than you previously had. Exactly. <sighs> All right. What do you reckon? One more? Have we got time? One more. Oh, One more. Why not? All right. Katie Munro, what's your favorite aha moment slash learning moment you've witnessed with a client? 
dog client, human client, or both? I would have to say, for me, it's generally when I'm dealing with aggressive dogs, when I can see that the client and the dog have got to a point of understanding where the dog no longer realizes it needs to be aggressive. Mm -hmm. And I've recently had one of those, just another good reminder, uh, a a student of mine in NDTF, uh, she's been working with me a lot lately. She's got a little bull breed dog, human and dog aggressive. And we've been working with a lot of box work. We've also been uh, empowering the clicker. So, you know, we've, we've been teaching that dog that it no longer needs to go out looking for trouble. Mm. So the dog isn't feeling stressed about leaving the house anymore. She's sending me like weekly update videos of the dog. So especially for the owner, she's receiving a real aha moment. For me, it's great reinforcement that what we're doing is working with the dogs, Mm -hmm. you know, and understanding Roger Branty's whole point on fear and aggression being not the same thing. Mm -hmm. That was a lovely aha moment, Mm -hmm. you know, like bridging the gap between that, those two things can't exist in the same place at the same time. You know, the same thing as dominance and submission and so forth like that, which I knew that one, but it was the fear aggression yeah, yeah. Uh, side of things. I'm sure you'll agree with me. That was a great aha moment. Yeah, you know, time, a lot yeah. of people in the audience who listened to the show also had aha moments over that. So for me, that was it. Mm-hmm. That was a great aha moment. Yeah. For me, and this is something that I try and maintain all the time in, in training dogs to do stuff, is mm. understanding the criteria of what your dog is doing from the dog's point of view. Yep. Uh, yeah, and, that's important. And for me, the aha moment came uh, the first time I ever outed a dog. It was a dog many dogs ago. I ever outed the dog from a decoy and called him to heal, and he healed against the decoy. Yep. And since I've noticed that happens with pretty much every dog. Yeah. Randy's uh, done it before too. Yeah. Mm. And what it is, is that you have a, an idea in your mind about the criteria of what you have taught the dog, right? Mm. But you can't actually explain it to the dog and say like, hey, healing looks like this. Healing looks like, you know, your right shoulder touching my left leg, you looking up at, the, at my face and your body in a straight line next to me. Mm. All you can do is incrementally... Uh, reward the things that are closest approximation to what it is that you want. Yep. But I think it's really important for anybody that's teaching dogs to do things and then they have moments of non-compliance is to understand from the dog's point of view what his idea of the criteria of what you've taught is. Yep. So my example where we're talking about a dog who outs from the decoy for the first time or even somebody else holding a wedge or a sleeve or whatever and then gets told to heal more often than not, the very first repetition of that will be that the dog will heal against the decoy mm. because that tells me that the criteria of healing for him is touching his right shoulder to the left leg of the person holding the reinforcer, yep. looking in the eyes of the person holding the reinforcer, keeping mm. a straight body against the person holding the reinforcer, not me, yep. right? And the decoy is the reinforcer, so the dog will do it there. Mm. And in that moment, a lot of people would then correct the dog and feel within their rights to do it because he's healed. He's healed a hundred times. He knows exactly what he's asking of it. Why would he do that? Yep. And in that moment, like I would rather than use a correction, I would use like guiding pressure back into the correct behavior. Mm. Or even with my own dog, when he did this, I was like, Hey, silly Billy, come over here. And you could see the dog was like, Oh, okay. Well, this is new to me. This yep. is a new, this is a new thing. And that for me was a big aha moment when I ca- really came to understand like, okay, how well does my dog know the criteria of behaviors as I expect him to know the criteria of behaviors. Mm. And this really relates heavily to when I first started getting into PSA and the nature of surprise scenarios, right? So, you know, with the change of positions, well, 
how well does you know dog know the commands to change position? Will he cycle through sit down stand when you say apples, oranges, bananas when he reads the play of that coming, or is he actually listening to the words that you say and performing the behaviours that you want? Right. And like I posted a video just recently, I'm teaching my dog uh, like a further send away. So one of the things I saw at PSA Nationals that uh, one of Janet's uh, surprise scenarios was to send a dog like past a decoy to search behind a van. And I thought, okay, that was a fucking hard, um, it was past multiple decoys or people all over the place. I was like, okay, how would I teach that? And so I'm, I'm starting to build a foundation of how to be able to do that. Cause I would not have been able to do that. If I were in that level, I would have been like, oh, I'm done. <laughs> Cause mm. my, my dog wouldn't have been able to do it. So now I'm building, okay, like what are some building blocks for that? So what I've been doing is sending my dog from his marker board to a further away marker board to the back to the closer one. Yeah, I watched your video away. the other day. That was look, that yeah. looked really good. So what I didn't post, right, is after that, I threw the frisbee, you see the video of me doing it, and I go, okay, my dog knows these behaviors. I don't have them on verbal command, but I've certainly got them on a like a signal, hand signal. He mm. knows them because it's existing signals that I have. So if you watch that video, if you jump on my like Facebook page, you see it, the Opera and Canon one, not my personal one. The filming of it is from where my car is. The camera is near my car and you can see in the distance like a baseball field, Mm -hmm. right? So after that, I thought, how well does he know this? And I turn around and I go to the other end so that I'm at the far end and I tell my dog to go to the marker board. And in the first video, you'll see he goes to the furthest one, right? But when I tell him to go from the other direction, he goes to the closest one. It's the same marker board. So he doesn't understand. I think he understands when I say go to the marker board, it means go to the furthest one. No. He understood it to be that particular one. Right. Right. And then I say to him, go further. Right. I give him the signal to go further, thinking that I have a dog who now knows how to go from one marker board to the other. And my signal is this go further signal. Right. But he stays on the same marker board. Right. And what it became clear to me was like, I knew, I knew this was going to happen and I had, uh, I did it on purpose is that I now have to reteach this to him because the context changed very slightly. And I thought my dog understood that I was saying, go to the marker board further away from me, right? Because I'm saying my command is further, Mm -hmm. right? But what my dog understands is to go to that particular marker board. And when I am at a different angle from it, he goes to it. And my my command of go further means jack shit. He's like, no, this is the one. But that's important you're testing this. That's right. It's really important you're testing this because you're not just satisfied with, oh, well, he knows it now because he's done it one way. Yeah, that's Mm. it. That's very, yeah. The aha for me. I'm pleased to hear that. The aha for me, and it's what I try and sort of uh, test in every behavior is – I want to isolate the criteria of the behavior that I've taught the dog from his perspective yep. and put him in a position to get it wrong if he under, if his understanding is different to mine, yep. right? And then reteach it yep. rather than go like, hey, that's fucking incorrect. And, and, and because I can't correct a dog who doesn't know right. what to do, yep. right? So I can use pressure. I can do, I just go back to a learning phase. But yep. it, it was for me diagnostic that I went, okay, he doesn't know this, right? Mm-hmm. It looks as, it fucking looks exactly like he knows it, yep. right? And in the video I put up, of course, that's the one I put up. <laughs> it looks like he knows exactly what I'm asking. But at least you're being open about the full analytical side of it that you experiment it from a different direction and, you know, it goes along that the context of that quote, it doesn't matter what we think and feel. It matters what the dog thinks yeah, and feels. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Because, I mean, we often have a perception of what the image of the dog's head is, and that's entirely different inside the dog's head. Yeah. And that's important to know because once you did get into an analytical stage of thinking, okay, let's reverse this and see what he really understands about it, only then do you truly, really know. Yeah. So then 
you know, no biggie. Like, no, I, it's no biggie. It's I, good. I reteach it. Like, mm. I just know, okay, I'm back to the learning phase. I reteach it from the other direction. Yep. What I then did in that same session was I moved it to like at a perpendicular to itself. And then now I know, okay, yeah, I'm pretty confident he knows that. So I've done it from both angles, like perpendicular. So basically, you know, from four different points. Yep. And then literally just before we started recording here, I've set him up on your field, which is a whole nother different environment and run it from both angles there. And then I can go, yeah, he knows. He knows what I'm talking about, right? Now I can start looking to fade those marker boards out. And he understands that when I say further, I mean, get further away from me, not go to a particular marker board. But yeah, for me to answer your question, that's been a huge aha moment for me and I try and pass that on to as many people as possible is to really try and understand the criteria as the dog understands it, not how you think he understands right. it. And the only way you can do that is to set him up to get it wrong. Yep. And when he gets it wrong, no problem, help yep. him become correct. That's the that, practice. That's the point, right? No, it's, it's no problem. You don't have to look at it as a failure or the no, dog doesn't understand or doesn't get it. And it's better that you do it in training rather than in trial. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, And that's where people leave it too late is they, they don't test it enough. They don't field test it. They don't go through a proofing phase with a dog. Take it to multiple applications and then find out, do you actually know this? They wait till they get to trial. That's their proofing field for the first time. And the dog goes, oh, I don't understand this because yeah. it's not the ideal picture that you usually set up. Yeah. I think, you know, diagnosing that kind of stuff, like front loading the diagnosis rather than finding out like, oh shit. Yeah. And, and mo- I think most of the time, like anybody that was watching me training would have said that is disobedience. Your dog is disobeying, but he's not in his system, in the way that we train, he doesn't disobey me. He mm. finds his advantage. Yep. Right. And he know like we're in a place where there's nothing else but the ball that he wants. If he knew what I wanted, he would fucking do it because yep. he's barking at me and he's giving me signals of, Hey, like I'm doing what you told. What's the fastest access point? Yeah, he's yeah. he's telling me I'm doing what you're told and that, what you want, and it's not what I want. So yeah. we now I have to step back and go, okay, bro, we go back to a learning yeah. phase and and we reteach this. And now I go, okay, now we increase the criteria a little bit. We change the environment, blah 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 blah. Right. Yeah. But I think yeah, understanding what is it my dog really knows this command to mean. Yeah. And, and if he regularly does the same thing, like really get into it and set him up to get it wrong so that you can make him right. Yep. Ugh. All right, yeah. I reckon we cut it there. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, well, there was. Hang on, what was it? the last one after that? I reckon we'll do another one on this. We could do it in a few days or whatever because there's still heaps of questions. Yeah, and we've also got to do a um, urban myth volume two. Yeah, mm. we need some myths though. Yeah, well, we can put it out. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, got anything else, Dad? That's a good hour and twenty show. So I think that's good. Yeah, well, I'm happy with that. Yeah. Mm. All right. Cool. Hey, that's it. Yeah. I had something to say, but I can't remember what it is. doesn't matter. Epstein didn't kill himself. <laughs> Still on that. <laughs> Have you seen the spate of things that oh, people yeah. are doing? Like yeah. they're catching a fish and, you know, like they'll they'll go, oh, what's in the fish's mouth? Yeah. They'll open it up and then you'll, they'll pull out a yeah. like a like a bag and inside the bag is a note saying yeah. Epstein didn't kill himself. Have or you seen the pointer? Have you seen that one? Yes. Yeah, yeah. pointing at the sign. Or the guy in the bite suit that um, Ben Gertz put up the yeah, other day. Yeah. Like he's going, oh, live bite, live bite, live bite. Yeah, the, yeah. Then they get him on the ground. He goes, quick, show me what it looks like. And I open up. <laughs> he's got a T-shirt, Epstein, and kill himself. <laughs> uh, 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 very clever. All right. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is via Patreon. I'm pretty excited about next month's Patreon. I've been working my ass off on that thing. I hope that people fucking appreciate it. And I've it. got one for January. Yeah, you're, you're in charge of January. Yep. The next one that I'm doing is uh, when I put out there to ask people what do they want, there was a lot of people that want like a roadmap to training your dog. And, and I'm constantly talking about 
strong foundations and I have finally figured out a way to articulate why I want those strong foundations and then given a roadmap. So I'm I'm actually really excited about it. It's going to be a a good episode. And if you don't like it, fuck you. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's been a lot. Well, there's that soundbite they're looking for. (laughs) Because it has been a lot of work to do. Yep. And you could also buy some t-shirts and stuff through Teespring. Teespring. That's another cool way to support the show as well as repping some cool gear. Uh, when we get some more time, we're gonna. There's gonna be some new and exciting designs mm. coming through mm. that. It's just time of getting it done. Yep. If you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is via email. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com. and I think that's it. That's it. Music. Music.